Chapter Thirteen of the Mountains of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All the LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mountains of California by John Muir. Chapter Thirteen The Water Oozel. The waterfalls of the Sierra are frequented by only one bird, the oozel or water thrush, Cinclus mexicanus. S. W. He is a singularly joyous and lovable little fellow, about the size of a robin, clad in a plain waterproof suit of bluish gray, with a tinge of chocolate on the head and shoulders. In form he is about as smoothly plump and compact as a pebble that has been whirled in a pothole, the flowing contour of his body being interrupted only by his strong feet and bill, the crisp wing-tips and the upslanted wren-like tail. Among all the countless waterfalls I have met in the course of ten years' exploration in the Sierra, whether among the icy peaks or warm foothills, or in the profound Yosemite canyons of the middle region, not one was found without its oozel. No canyon is too cold for this little bird, none too lonely, provided it be rich in falling water. Find a fall or cascade or rushing rapid anywhere upon a clear stream, and there you will surely find its complementary oozel flitting about in the spray, diving in foaming eddies, whirling like a leaf among beaten foam bells, ever vigorous and enthusiastic, yet self-contained, and neither seeking nor shunning your company. If disturbed while dipping about in the margin shallows, he either sets off with a rapid whirr to some other feeding ground up or down the stream, or alights on some half-submerged rock or snag out in the current, and immediately begins to nod and curtsy like a wren turning his head from side to side, with many other odd dainty movements that never fail to fix the attention of the observer. He is the mountain stream's own darling, the hummingbird of blooming waters, loving rocky ripple slopes and sheets of foam as a bee loves flowers, as a lark loves sunshine and meadows. Among all the mountain birds, none has cheered me so much in my lonely wanderings, none so unfailingly for both in winter and summer he sings sweetly, cheerily, independent alike of sunshine and of love, requiring no other inspiration than the stream on which he dwells. While water sings, so must he, in heat or cold, calm or storm, ever attuning his voice in sure accord, low in the drought of summer and the drought of winter, but never silent. During the golden days of Indian summer, after most of the snow has been melted, and the mountain streams have become feeble, a succession of silent pools, linked together by shallow, transparent currents and strips of silvery lacework, then the song of the oozel is at its lowest ebb. But as soon as the winter clouds have bloomed, and the mountain treasuries are once more replenished with snow, the voices of the streams and oozels increase in strength and richness until the flood season of early summer. Then the torrents chant their noblest anthems, and then is the flood-time of our songster's melody. As for weather, dark days and sundays are the same to him. The voices of most songbirds, however joyous, suffer a long winter eclipse, but the oozel sings on through all the seasons and every kind of storm. Indeed, no storm can be more violent than those of the waterfalls in the midst of which he delights to dwell. However dark and boisterous the weather, snowing, blowing, or cloudy, all the same he sings and with never a note of sadness. No need of spring sunshine to thaw his song, for it never freezes. 
Never shall you hear anything wintry from his warm breast, no pinch-cheeping, no wavering notes between sorrow and joy. His mellow, fluty voice is ever tuned to downright gladness, as free from dejection as cock-crowing. It is pitiful to see wee frost-pinched sparrows on cold mornings in the mountain groves, shaking the snow from their feathers, and hopping about as if anxious to be cheery, then hastening back to their hidings out of the wind, puffing out their breast-feathers over their toes, and subsiding among the leaves, cold and breakfastless, while the snow continues to fall and there is no sign of clearing. But the oozel never calls forth a single touch of pity, not because he is strong to endure, but rather because he seems to live a charmed life beyond the reach of every influence that makes endurance necessary. One wild winter morning, when Yosemite Valley was swept its length from west to east by a cordial snowstorm, I sallied forth to see what I might learn and enjoy. A sort of gray, gloaming-like darkness filled the valley. The huge walls were out of sight. All ordinary sounds were smothered, and even the loudest booming of the falls was at times buried beneath the roar of the heavy-laden blast. The loose snow was already over five feet deep on the meadows, making extended walks impossible without the aid of snowshoes. I found no great difficulty, however, in making my way to a certain ripple on the river where one of my oozels lived. He was at home, busily gleaning his breakfast among the pebbles of a shallow portion of the margin, apparently unaware of anything extraordinary in the weather. Presently he flew out to a stone against which the icy current was beating, and turning his back to the wind, sang as delightfully as a lark in springtime. After spending an hour or two with my favorite, I made my way across the valley, boring and wallowing through the drifts, to learn as definitely as possible how the other birds were spending their time. The Yosemite birds are easily found during the winter, because all of them, excepting the oozel, are restricted to the sunny north side of the valley, the south side being constantly eclipsed by the great frosty shadow of the wall. And, because the Indian Canyon groves, from their peculiar exposure, are the warmest, the birds congregate there, more especially in severe weather. I found most of the robins cowering on the lee side of the larger branches, where the snow could not fall upon them, while two or three of the more enterprising were making desperate efforts to reach the mistletoe berries by clinging nervously to the underside of the snow-crowned masses, back downward like woodpeckers. Every now and then they would dislodge some of the loose fringes of the snow-crown, which would come sifting down on them, and send them screaming back to camp, where they would subside among their companions with a shiver, muttering in low, querulous chatter like hungry children. Some of the sparrows were busy at the foot of the larger trees, gleaning seeds and benumbed insects, joined now and then by a robin, weary of his unsuccessful attempts upon the snow-covered berries. The brave woodpeckers were clinging to the snowless sides of the larger boles and overarching branches of the camp trees, making short flights from side to side of the grove, pecking now and then at the acorns they had stored in the bark, and chattering aimlessly as if unable to keep still, yet evidently putting in the time in a very dull way, like storm-bound travellers at a country tavern. The hardy nuthatches were threading the open furrows of the trunks in their usual industrious manner, and uttering their quaint notes, evidently less distressed than their neighbors. The stellar jays were of course making more noisy stir than all the other birds combined, ever coming and going with loud bluster, screaming as if each had a lump of melting sludge in his throat, 
and taking good care to improve the favorable opportunity afforded by the storm to steal from the acorn stores of the woodpeckers. I also noticed one solitary gray eagle braving the storm on the top of a tall pine stump just outside the main grove. He was standing bolt upright with his back to the wind, a tuft of snow piled on his square shoulders, a monument of passive endurance. Thus every snow-bound bird seemed more or less uncomfortable, if not in positive distress. The storm was reflected in every gesture, and not one cheerful note, not to say song, came from a single bill, their cowering, joyless endurance offering a striking contrast to the spontaneous, irresistible gladness of the ouzel, who could no more help exhaling sweet song than a rose sweet fragrance. He must sing, though the heavens fall. I remember noticing the distress of a pair of robins during the violent earthquake of the year 1872, when the pines of the valley, with strange movements, flapped and waved their branches, and beetling rock-brows came thundering down to the meadows in tremendous avalanches. It did not occur to me, in the midst of the excitement of other observations, to look for the oozels, but I doubt not they were singing straight on through it all, regarding the terrible rock-thunder as fearlessly as they do the booming of the waterfalls. What may be regarded as the separate songs of the oozel are exceedingly difficult of description, because they are so variable and at the same time so confluent. Though I have been acquainted with my favorite ten years, and during most of this time have heard him sing nearly every day, I still detect notes and strains that seem new to me. Nearly all of his music is sweet and tender, lapsing from his round breast like water over the smooth lip of a pool, then breaking farther on into a sparkling foam of melodious notes, which glow with subdued enthusiasm, yet without expressing much of the strong, gushing ecstasy of the bobolink or skylark. The more striking strains are perfect arabesques of melody, composed of a few full, round, mellow notes, embroidered with delicate trills which fade and melt in long, slender cadences. In a general way his music is that of the streams refined and spiritualized. The deep booming notes of the falls are in it, the trills of the rapids, the gurgling of margin eddies, the low whispering of level reaches, and the sweet tinkle of separate drops oozing from the ends of mosses and falling into tranquil pools. The ouzel never sings in chorus with other birds, nor with his kind, but only with the streams. And like flowers that bloom beneath the surface of the ground, some of our favorite's best song-blossoms never rise above the surface of the heavier music of the water. I have often observed him singing in the midst of beaten spray, his music completely buried beneath the water's roar, yet I knew he was surely singing by his gestures and the movements of his bill. His food, as far as I have noticed, consists of all kinds of water insects, which in summer are chiefly procured along shallow margins. Here he wades about, ducking his head under water, and deftly turning over pebbles and fallen leaves with his bill, seldom choosing to go into deep water, where he has to use his wings in diving. He seems to be especially fond of the larvae of mosquitoes, found in abundance, attached to the bottom of smooth rock channels, where the current is shallow. When feeding in such places, he wades upstream, and often, while his head is under water, the swift current is deflected upward, along the glossy curves of his neck and shoulders, in the form of a clear crystalline shell, which fairly encloses him like a bell-glass, the shell being broken and reformed as he lifts and dips his head. 
while ever and anon he sidles out to where the too powerful current carries him off his feet, then he dexterously rises on the wing and goes gleaming again in shallower places. But during the winter, when the stream-banks are embossed in snow, and the streams themselves are chilled nearly to the freezing point, so that the snow falling into them in stormy weather is not wholly dissolved, but forms a thin blue sludge, thus rendering the current opaque. Then he seeks the deeper portions of the main rivers, where he may dive to clear water beneath the sludge, or he repairs to some open lake or mill-pond, at the bottom of which he feeds in safety. When thus compelled to betake himself to a lake, he does not plunge into it at once like a duck, but always alights in the first place upon some rock or fallen pine along the shore. Then flying out thirty or forty yards, more or less, according to the character of the bottom, he alights with a dainty glint on the surface, swims about, looks down, finally makes up his mind, and disappears with a sharp stroke of his wings. After feeding for two or three minutes, he suddenly reappears, showers the water from his wings with one vigorous shake, and rises abruptly into the air, as if pushed up from beneath, comes back to his perch, sings a few minutes, and goes out to dive again, thus coming and going, singing and diving, at the same place for hours. The ousel is usually found singly, rarely in pairs, excepting during the breeding season, and very rarely in threes or fours. I once observed three thus spending a winter morning in company, upon a small glacier lake, on the upper Merced, about seventy-five hundred feet above the level of the sea. A storm had occurred during the night, but the morning sun shone unclouded, and the shadowy lake, gleaming darkly in its setting of fresh snow, lay smooth and motionless as a mirror. My camp chanced to be within a few feet of the water's edge, opposite a fallen pine, some of the branches of which leaned out over the lake. Here my three dearly welcome visitors took up their station, and at once began to embroider the frosty air with their delicious melody, doubly delightful to me that particular morning, as I had been somewhat apprehensive of danger in breaking my way down through the snow-choked canyons to the lowlands. The portion of the lake bottom selected for a feeding ground lies at a depth of fifteen or twenty feet below the surface, and is covered with a short growth of algae and other aquatic plants, facts I had previously determined while sailing over it on a raft. After alighting on the glassy surface, they occasionally indulged in a little play, chasing one another round about in small circles. Then all three would suddenly dive together, and then come ashore and sing. The ousel seldom swims more than a few yards on the surface, for not being web-footed he makes rather slow progress, but by means of his strong, crisp wings he swims, or rather flies, with celerity under the surface, often to considerable distances but it is in withstanding the force of heavy rapids that his strength of wing in this respect is most strikingly manifested. The following may be regarded as a fair illustration of his power of sub-aquatic flight. One stormy morning in winter, when the Merced River was blue and green with unmelted snow, I observed one of my oozels perched on a snag out in the midst of a swift rushing rapid, singing cheerily, as if everything was just to his mind and while I stood on the bank admiring him, he suddenly plunged into the sludgy current, leaving his song abruptly broken off. After feeding a minute or two at the bottom, and when one would suppose that he must inevitably be swept far downstream, he emerged just where he went down, alighted on the same snag, showered the water beads from his feathers, and continued his unfinished song, 
seemingly in tranquil ease as if it had suffered no interruption. The ousel alone of all birds dares to enter a white torrent, and though strictly terrestrial in structure, no other is so inseparably related to water, not even the duck, or the bold ocean albatross, or the stormy petrel. For ducks go ashore as soon as they finish feeding in undisturbed places, and very often make long flights over land from lake to lake or field to field. The same is true of most other aquatic birds, but the ousel, born on the brink of a stream, or on a snag or boulder in the midst of it, seldom leaves it for a single moment. For notwithstanding, he is often on the wing, he never flies over land, but whirs with rapid quail-like beat above the stream, tracing all its windings. Even when the stream is quite small, say from five to ten feet wide, he seldom shortens his flight by crossing a bend, however abrupt it may be, and even when disturbed by meeting someone on the bank, he prefers to fly over one's head, to dodging out over the ground. When, therefore, his flight along a crooked stream is viewed endwise, it appears most strikingly wavered, a description on the air of every curve with lightning-like rapidity. The vertical curves and angles of the most precipitous torrents he traces with the same rigid fidelity, swooping down the inclines of cascades, dropping sheer over dizzy falls amid the spray, and ascending with the same fearlessness and ease, seldom seeking to lessen the steepness of the acclivity by beginning to ascend before reaching the base of the fall. No matter, though, it may be several hundred feet in height, he holds straight on, as if about to dash headlong into the throng of booming rockets, then darts abruptly upward, and after alighting at the top of the precipice to rest a moment, proceeds to feed and sing. His flight is solid and impetuous, without any intermission of wing-beats, one homogeneous buzz like that of a laden bee on its way home. And while thus buzzing freely from fall to fall, he is frequently heard giving utterance to a long outdrawn train of unmodulated notes, in no way connected with his song, but corresponding closely with his flight in sustained vigor. Were the flights of all the oozels in the Sierra traced on a chart, they would indicate the direction of the flow of the entire system of ancient glaciers, from about the period of the breaking up of the ice sheet until near the close of the glacial winter, because the streams which the oozels so rigidly follow are, with the unimportant exceptions of a few side tributaries, all flowing in channels eroded for them out of the solid flank of the range by the vanished glaciers. The streams tracing the ancient glaciers, the oozels tracing the streams. Nor do we find so complete compliance to glacial conditions in the life of any other mountain bird or animal of any kind. Bears frequently accept the pathways laid down by glaciers as the easiest to travel, but they often leave them and cross over from canyon to canyon. So also, most of the birds trace the moraines to some extent, because the forests are growing on them. But they wander far, crossing the canyons from grove to grove, and draw exceedingly angular and complicated courses. The ousel's nest is one of the most extraordinary pieces of bird architecture I ever saw, odd and novel in design, perfectly fresh and beautiful, and in every way worthy of the genius of the little builder. It is about a foot in diameter, round and bossy in outline, with a neatly arched opening near the bottom, somewhat like an old-fashioned brick oven or Hotentut's hut. It is built almost exclusively of green and yellow mosses, chiefly the beautiful fronded hypnum that covers the rocks and old drift logs in the vicinity of waterfalls. These are deftly interwoven and felted together into a charming little hut, 
and so situated that many of the outer mosses continue to flourish as if they had not been plucked. A few fine, silky stem grasses are occasionally found interwoven with the mosses, but, with the exception of a thin layer lining the floor, their presence seems accidental, as if they are of a species found growing with the mosses and are probably plucked with them. The site chosen for this curious mansion is usually some little rock shelf within reaches of the lighter particles of the spray of a waterfall, so that its walls are kept green and growing, at least during the time of high water. No harsh lines are presented by any portion of the nest as seen in place, but when removed from its shelf, the back and bottom, and sometimes a portion of the top, is found quite sharply angular, because it is made to conform to the surface of the rock upon which and against which it is built, the little architect always taking advantage of slight crevices and protuberances that may chance to offer to render his structure stable by means of a kind of gripping and dovetailing. In choosing a building spot, concealment does not seem to be taken into consideration. Yet notwithstanding the nest is large and guilelessly exposed to view, it is far from being easily detected, chiefly because it swells forward like any other bulging moss cushion growing naturally in such situations. This is more especially the case where the nest is kept fresh by being well sprinkled. Sometimes these romantic little huts have their beauty enhanced by rock ferns and grasses that spring up around the mossy walls or in front of the door sill, dripping with crystal beads. Furthermore, at certain hours of the day, when the sunshine is poured down at the required angle, the whole mass of the spray enveloping the fairy establishment is brilliantly irised, and it is through so glorious a rainbow atmosphere as this that some of our blessed oozles obtain their first peep at the world. Oozles seem so completely part and parcel of the streams they inhabit, they scarce suggest any other origin than the streams themselves and one might almost be pardoned in fancying that they come direct from the living waters, like flowers from the ground. At least from whatever cause, it never occurred to me to look for their nests until more than a year after I had made the acquaintance of the birds themselves, although I found one the very day on which I began the search. In making my way from Yosemite to the glaciers at the heads of the Merced and Tulum rivers, I camped in a particularly wild and romantic portion of the Nevada Canyon, where in previous excursions I had never failed to enjoy the company of my favorites, who were attracted here, no doubt, by the safe nesting places in the shelving rocks, and by the abundance of food and falling water. The river, for miles above and below, consists of a succession of small falls from ten to sixty feet in height, connected by flat, plume-like cascades that go flashing from fall to fall, free and almost channelless, over waving folds of glacier-polished granite. On the south side of one of the falls, that portion of the precipice which is bathed by the spray presents a series of little shelves and tablets caused by the development of planes of cleavage in the granite and by the consequent fall of masses through the action of the water. Now here, said I, of all places, is the most charming spot for an oozle's nest. Then carefully scanning the fretted face of the precipice through the spray, I at length noticed a yellowish moss cushion growing on the edge of a level tablet within five or six feet of the outer folds of the fall. But apart from the fact of its being situated where one acquainted with the lives of oozles would fancy an oozle's nest ought to be, there was nothing in its appearance visible at first sight to distinguish it from other bosses of rock moss similarly situated with reference to perennial spray. And it was not until I had scrutinized it again and again 
and had removed my shoes and stockings and crept along the face of the rock within eight or ten feet of it, that I could decide, certainly, whether it was a nest or a natural growth. In these moss huts three or four eggs are laid, white like foam bubbles, and well may the little birds hatch from them sing water songs, for they hear them all their lives, and even before they are born. I have often observed the young just out of the nest, making their odd gestures, and seeming in every way as much at home as their experienced parents, like young bees on their first excursions to the flower-fields. No amount of familiarity with people and their ways seems to change them in the least. To all appearance their behavior is just the same on seeing a man for the first time as when they have seen him frequently. On the lower reaches of the rivers where mills are built, they sing on through the din of the machinery, and all the noisy confusion of dogs, cattle, and workmen. On one occasion, while a woodchopper was at work on the river bank, I observed one cheerily singing within reach of the flying chips. Nor does any kind of unwanted disturbance put him in bad humor, or frighten him out of calm self-possession. In passing through a narrow gorge, I once drove one ahead of me from rapid to rapid, disturbing him four times in quick succession, where he could not very well fly past me on account of the narrowness of the channel. Most birds, under similar circumstances, fancy themselves pursued, and become suspiciously uneasy. But instead of growing nervous about it, he made his usual dippings, and sang one of his most tranquil strains. When observed within a few yards, their eyes are seen to express remarkable gentleness and intelligence, but they seldom allow so near a view unless one wears clothing of about the same color as the rocks and trees, and knows how to sit still. On one occasion, while rambling along the shore of a mountain lake, where the birds, at least those born that season, had never seen a man, I sat down to rest on a large stone close to the water's edge, upon which it seemed the ouzels and sandpipers were in the habit of alighting when they came to feed on that part of the shore, and some of the other birds also, when they came down to wash or drink. In a few minutes along came a whirring oozel, and alighted on the stone beside me, within reach of my hand. Then suddenly observing me, he stooped nervously, as if about to fly on the instant, but as I remained as motionless as the stone, he gained confidence, and looked me steadily in the face for about a minute, then flew quietly to the outlet and began to sing. Next came a sandpiper, and gazed at me with much the same guileless expression of eye as the oozel. Lastly, down with a swoop came a stellar's jay out of a fir-tree, probably with the intention of moistening his noisy throat. But instead of sitting confidingly, as my other visitors had done, he rushed off at once, nearly tumbling heels overhead into the lake in his suspicious confusion, and with loud screams roused the neighborhood. Love for songbirds, with their sweet human voices, appears to be more common and unfailing than love for flowers. Everyone loves flowers to some extent at least in life's fresh morning, attracted by them as instinctively as hummingbirds and bees. Even the young digger Indians have sufficient love for the brightest of those found growing on the mountains to gather them and braid them as decorations for the hair. And I was glad to discover, through the few Indians that could be induced to talk on the subject, that they have names for the wild rose and the lily, and other conspicuous flowers, whether available as food or otherwise. Most men, however, whether savage or civilized, become apathetic toward all plants that have no other apparent use than the use of beauty. But fortunately, one's first instinctive love of songbirds is never wholly obliterated, no matter what the influences upon our lives may be. 
I have often been delighted to see a pure spiritual glow come into the countenances of hard businessmen and old miners when a songbird chanced to alight near them. Nevertheless, the little mouthful of meat that swells out of the breasts of some songbirds is too often the cause of their death. Larks and robins in particular are brought to market in hundreds. But fortunately the ousel has no enemy so eager to eat his little body as to follow him into the mountain solitudes. I never knew him to be chased even by hawks. An acquaintance of mine, a sort of foothill mountaineer, had a pet cat, a great dozy overgrown creature, about as broad-shouldered as a lynx. During the winter, while the snow lay deep, the mountaineer sat in his lonely cabin among the pines, smoking his pipe and wearing the dull time away. Tom was his sole companion, sharing his bed and sitting beside him on a stool with much the same drowsy expression of eye as his master. The good-natured bachelor was content with his hard fare of soda-bread and bacon, but Tom, the only creature in the world acknowledging dependence on him, must needs be provided with fresh meat. Accordingly, he bestirred himself to contrive squirrel-traps, and waded the snowy woods with his gun, making sad havoc among the few winter birds, sparing neither robin, sparrow, nor tiny nuthatch, and the pleasure of seeing Tom eat and grow fat was his great reward. One cold afternoon, while hunting along the river-bank, he noticed a plain feathered little bird skipping about in the shallows, and immediately raised his gun. But just then the confiding songster began to sing, and after listening to his summary melody, the charmed hunter turned away, saying, "'Bless your little heart, I can't shoot you, not even for Tom.' Even so far north as icy Alaska I have found my glad singer. When I was exploring the glaciers between Mount Fairweather and the Stikeen River, one cold day in November, after trying in vain to force a way through the innumerable icebergs of Sumdum Bay to the great glaciers at the head of it, I was weary and baffled, and sat resting in my canoe, convinced at last that I would have to leave this part of my work for another year. Then I began to plan my escape to open water, before the young ice which was beginning to form should shut me in. While I thus lingered drifting with the bergs, in the midst of these gloomy forebodings, and all the terrible glacial desolation and grandeur, I suddenly heard the well-known whirr of an oozel's wings, and looking up, saw my little comforter coming straight across the ice from the shore. In a second or two he was with me, flying three times round my head with a happy salute, as if saying, "'Cheer up, old friend. You see, I'm here, and all's well.' Then he flew back to the shore, alighted on the topmost drag of a stranded iceberg, and began to nod and bow, as though he were on one of his favorite boulders, in the midst of a sunny Sierra cascade. The species is distributed all along the mountain ranges of the Pacific coast, from Alaska to Mexico, and east to the Rocky Mountains. Nevertheless, it is as yet comparatively little known. Audubon and Wilson did not meet it. Swainson was, I believe, the first naturalist to describe a specimen from Mexico. Specimens were shortly afterward procured by Drummond near the sources of the Athabasca River, between the 54th and 56th parallels, and it has been collected by nearly all of the numerous exploring expeditions undertaken of late through our western states and territories, for it never fails to engage the attention of naturalists in a very particular manner. Such, then, is our little Sinclus, beloved of every one who is so fortunate as to know him. Tracing on strong wing every curve of the most precipitous torrents from one extremity of the Sierra to the other, not fearing to follow them through their darkest gorges and coldest snow-tunnels, 
acquainted with every waterfall, echoing their divine music, and throughout the whole of their beautiful lives, interpreting all that we in our unbelief call terrible in the utterances of torrents and storms, as only varied expressions of God's eternal love. End of chapter 13